1: Audio studios podcasts radio news.
2: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen along with Paul Sweeney. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. It's been a great honor to know him, his public commitment to the United States from coming out of San Diego is a young buck out of Annapolis. James Stravitas joins us now. And Admiral, and of course, his work with Carlisle is noted. Admiral Stravitas, I, I, I wanna get down to the granular because I don't think enough of the granular's talked. Somebody has to pay for a Magura V5 drone so it can sink a modest sized ship of the Russian Navy. Is Washington saying the Ukraine is a generalization that we're not going to pay for a Magura V5 drone or whatever so that we can assist you.
3: Yeah, that's the message being delivered to Kiev right now. It, it's immensely frustrating to anybody who cares about the security of the country, Tom. And it's not its not just drones. It's artillery shells. It's eight ATACMs, long-range missiles. It's getting the <clears throat> F-16s onto the battlefield, all of that. Uh, We are failing uh, the cause of freedom. Final thought, it's $60 billion. That's okay, an amount of money. Our defense budget is $900 billion. So for 5% of our defense budget, we break the Russian armed forces, defeat Vladimir Putin. This is a business show. That sounds like a pretty good ROI to me. How close are we
2: to Lend-Lease or before Lend-Lease 1938, 1939, where basically isolationist America said, we don't want to participate at that time in a European war. Is this just nothing more than an isolationist
3: debate of a global America? I think it is. It feels eerily like the 1930s. Go back and read the first volume of Winston Churchill's magisterial six-volume set, the Second World War. It's called The Gathering Storm. That's what it feels like to me. And it feels like
2: to me, folks, if you want to read it, particularly the kids out there, War and Remembrance, Herman Valk, which is just shocking on 1938, Mm -hmm. is a fiction. Paul, jump in here with Admiral Stavridis.
0: Admiral, can you give us, based upon your sourcing, kind of the latest on the battlefield in Ukraine today?
3: I can. uh, No surprise. Um, As uh, supplies dwindle to the Ukrainians, it puts uh, real lift in the Russian armed forces. So they're moving forward. It's not yet uh, the end of the road for Ukraine, but you can feel the wind behind the sails of Vladimir Putin. And by the way, it's all connected to his arrogance, his impunity and killing Alexander Navalny uh, over the last few days. Um, All of this is giving real lift on the battlefield to the Russians. We better get this military aid to the Ukrainians. Or we're going to see more losses, and the hole that's being dug will be much harder to
0: get out of. Admiral, I think most students of history take away that, boy, the Russian people, the Russian army can take untold amounts of pain and time. Is there any sense that Russia will bend here at all, other than, you know, I guess a, a superior military?
3: I think it's going to require. Uh, continued significant aid from the West, and uh, yes, Russians can take a lot of pain. Go back and read "One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich" by the Nobel laureate Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It's about right. someone in Gulag. These are tough yep. people, and right. Putin is a tough, long-range player. But uh, his soldiers are <clears> dying <throat> in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of young men have departed the country, Russia, to avoid the draft. Long term, it's not a good hand of cards. We just need to keep our foot on the accelerator. Uh, James
2: Trevitas with us, the former NATO Supreme uh, Commander. Program note here, the new Foreign Affairs magazine is extraordinary. Neil Ferguson, the great and controversial historian, with a definitive Mm -hmm. essay there on just what the Admiral was talking about, which is, the detente, the new kind of theme that's out there of a Kissinger realist policy versus whatever the new policy is that we're making up as we go. I want to go to our conversation, Admiral, on Bloomberg surveillance moments ago with a member of the Biden administration. And John Farrell asked the money question, what about India? I have hockey stick charts of exports from Kazakhstan in India into Russia. What is our political and military leverage with Mr. Modi as he faces a new
3: election? Uh, First, let's let him get through his election. You know, 900 million people literally are going to go to the polls and vote in India. I think he'll win uh, a strong, strong uh, poll. Then he'll come back with real confidence in his third term. I think that's when we can go to him offstage and say, what will it take? Can we pull you away from this support line you are providing to Russia? You're right, Tom. India is the key. China is right. going to continue to support Putin. India is the swing vote here. We need to focus on Okay.
2: I, I'm going to go there, folks. We're going to rip up the script here with James so ramachandra Guo, who's the definitive Gandhi biographer, has a blistering essay here Begging the United States to impart its policy over to India is they actually become somewhat dominant with the struggling China. Do we have any military presence over there, Admiral? Do we exist in this in the Indian Sea or the the South, whatever the ocean is there from South Africa, Durban, on the way over to uh,
3: Indonesia? Yeah, Tom, that would be the Indian Ocean. Thank it's the you. Third, you know largest that. ocean. That's after why, That's why, Admiral, you yes. were
2: on the boat and I was driving the taxi cab.
3: <laughs> so uh, we, we have uh, a, a strong level of presence there because we sail through it, both from the Pacific side and from the Red Sea side into the Arabian Gulf. We could do a lot more militarily with the Indians. And the Indian military, I assure you, would like to come more into focus with the United States by more of our systems. For decades, they've been reliant on Russia. That's another piece of this. If we can insert U.S. military cooperation with our Indian colleagues, I think we would go a long way toward pulling India in our direction.
0: Admiral, let's pivot slightly to the Middle East. Um, boy, it, it, talk about another challenging situation there. What is your most up-to-date view of how this is playing out and is likely to play out over the coming weeks?
3: Um, Humanitarian crisis, most obviously, hostages on top of it. Um, That is going to continue to fester for probably two to three more months Mm. while the Israelis fully consolidate control. They're trying to reduce collateral damage. They're succeeding somewhat in doing so. Um, That frame is going to freeze in two to three months, then a peacekeeping force will come in. Things will deaccelerate at that point. The one I'm watching from an investment perspective are the attacks, the Red Sea, the potential effective closure of the Suez Canal by the Houthis. We're going to need to put more military uh, missiles on targets ashore in order to stop that and keep the global commerce open. Those are the two main things I'm watching.
0: Are you surprised that maybe we haven't had more success in that area in gaining greater control over the Red Sea and its shipping lanes?
3: I'm not surprised simply because Iran continues to refuel, recharge, organize, train, and equip the Houthis. Right now, we're striking Houthi targets ashore. If Iran does not get the message to cease and desist, We're going to have to start going after Iranian maritime targets, their ships, their warships, their platforms. Uh, I hope we don't get there, but that message has to get to Tehran. It's not going to get solved in Yemen.
2: Admiral, with great respect to the British, their ships can't get out of the harbor. I mean, I'm not going to mince words and we have a prime minister out of Southampton with all that heritage. Our pride going, and this goes to the Admiral's book of Stravitas. Admiral, I'm so sorry. Remind me the name of your book where you line up 10 admirals in a row. Uh, it's called Sailing True North. Sailing True North. Rickover sailed True North because he had a budget. Zumwalt sailed True North because he had a budget. Does our present Navy have a budget? Or are we going to be stuck in Southampton or Portsmouth like
3: the British Navy? Yeah, on a, on a scale that runs from... Um, the British challenges you're talking about, which are very real, uh, to uh, a fully sourced U.S. Navy that can undertake its global mission, we're about three quarters of the way to where we should be, meaning we have about 300 warships. I'll put it in really round numbers. We need about 350 warships. That would match what China has. China has the largest fleet in the world. If you ask me as an admiral, which fleet would I rather have, in a fight, I'd still take the American fleet because of our experience, our nuclear carriers, our submarine technology. But that edge we have is dwindling, Tom. We need to put emphasis on the maritime because everything we've talked about um, goes back to the sea and the oceans and the ability to keep global commerce moving.
0: And that's the subject of a recent column of yours, Admiral. Russia's new threat is underwater, not in space. Can you explain that?
3: Yeah, we we had a week where we were all shocked to hear from the uh, intelligence community that, uh uh-oh, Russia's thinking about putting a nuclear weapon in space. That would be bad. They haven't done it yet. They don't really have that technology yet. What they do have is the ability to disrupt underwater cables that carry the entire internet. Uh, Only 500 cables carry the entire global internet, all the commerce, 10 trillion transactions a day. Those are right. vulnerable targets on the bottom of the sea. Russia could go right. after them today. I have to end with a delicate
2: uh, question and given his public service for all Americans, whatever their political persuasion, it's it's delicate. Should the Secretary of Defense Admiral so ill,
3: should he resign? Uh, he should do what his health demands. If he has the health and the vigor to act as Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, a contemporary of mine, um, he should remain in office as long as his health permits.
2: James Trevitas, thank you so much. Can't say enough about Leaders Bookshelf. It's just one of my favorite, favorite books. I'll put that out here in the blur uh, today as well. The former Supreme NATO commander, just a terrific brief there.
0: Nobody ever says make it complicated.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: Joining us now, the tennis player from Princeton, Andrew Husby, uh, here <laughs> on the economics of the moment. He's with a small French thing. Do you get, uh, Andrew, I'm going to cut to the chase. Forget about the BMP Perry by U.S. Open tickets. Oh Are you God. over in Paris at the best tennis court in the world? Are you watching a, out of the BNP Paribas box, <laughs> the, um, the, uh, the French Open with a just gorgeous green that they have?
6: Uh, unfortunately, Tom, I, I'm not, but uh, I'm certainly uh, missing out on that experience right now.
2: It's, it's, it's great. I, I yep. wandered into the courts one day when I was like 15 years old. It's yep. like magical. Yep. It's like surreal. With BNP Paribas and Carl Riccadonna, Andrew Husby uh, with us this morning. Andrew, Paul and I have like completely ignored the parlor game. Give us an update on what you believe this Fed would do.
6: Sure. Well, thanks, Tom. So at the moment, we think uh, this is a Fed and we're hearing it in the Fed speak. We've seen uh, really since the december meeting this is the a fed that is very cautious about cutting uh, too early here um, coming into this year think about the narrative uh, a lot of folks were thinking we might get a cut as soon as march maybe even january yeah. um, but the narrative has really shifted here we our uh, our team did not uh, subscribe to the the march cut view yes um, we had been up until last year been in, up uh, up until uh, last week rather been in the may camp um, but we do think The January CPI report, uh, along with the accumulation of stronger data, uh, really does make us think that the Fed is going to move even a bit later than that. So we think, uh, ultimately, Mm -hmm. it will be a June cut um, and a shallower path this year of cuts than we had previously envisioned. We see about 100 basis points of cuts this year. as, uh, as the Fed uh, kind of eyes, again, the stronger inflation backdrop uh, and, most importantly, a stronger economic growth backdrop, which you know, y- there's an right. argument to be made that um, stronger growth itself can be disinflationary if the supply side is coming back. But it's hard to bet uh, too strongly on that. So uh, we think in, in that environment, the Fed stays right. pretty cautious here. Well, what's
2: so important here, folks, is the overlay of stimulus. Are we through the stimulus? Because I've had whispers this week. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, Andrew. We're distracted with NVIDIA. I apologize but but with it and andrew are we beyond the stimulus i'm not so sure
6: uh it doesn't feel like it's all uh fully run off uh, whether you're thinking about the the, the excess uh, savings built up over the pandemic yes a lot of that is run down but you look at the after effects on uh, say the the equity market um there's a attendant wealth effect uh still coming through uh, yeah. there um and as we're looking ahead to you know just again where deficits are, uh, they're still high. Um, And as we look ahead to the election, you're still looking at potential uh, catalysts that could catalyze a more uh, uh, expansionary fiscal policy after the election too. So all of that suggests, uh, you know, it certainly hasn't all uh, run out just yet.
0: Hey Andrew, I think since the January inflation data, the CPI and the PPI data came out, we've actually had some people come into the studio and say, hey, you have to have in your scenario analysis, a scenario where the Fed actually Hikes rates this year. What do you think about that?
6: Yeah. So certainly, uh, at the moment, you know, we're thinking uh, that sort of a scenario involves the Fed uh, just staying on hold for longer, um, unless we really think. Uh, that um, the so-called neutral rate in the economy is really substantially higher and re- really remains substantially higher for this year, next year. Um, you know, it still feels as though policy is restrictive. We're seeing it in uh, the data flow. We're seeing it uh, certainly uh, in the inflation data itself. Inflation has come down pretty substantially, so it tells us that things are moving in the right direction. Uh, but certainly, you know, could the Fed hike again? You can you can entertain scenarios, but uh, that's uh, far from our base case at the moment. Again, we're focused on duration at the current level, yep. uh, not, uh, not added hikes.
0: So how about the, one of the aspects of this economy that continues to amaze me is the labor market, how strong the labor market remains. Um, some are saying that the Fed really needs to see the unemployment rate, you know, maybe move above 4%, maybe 4.5%. What, how are you guys thinking about this U.S. labor market?
6: Yeah, it's been surprising, um, both uh, in terms of the strength we saw in the last two jobs reports. You're seeing job growth above uh, 300,000 a month. Uh, and it's also surprising in that uh, some of the revisions we've seen kind of reshape the path. So not only is recent job growth stronger, but it was stronger at the end of last year. And that's meant you know, more income, uh, more spending, and the like. Now, the question for us, you know, when you look at factors like uh, labor supply, um, we've seen a pretty substantial rebound in labor supply. Um, and, and recently, the, even the CBO had come out with a report saying, actually, the labor force, potential labor force is actually potentially much larger on account of uh, immigration uh, and the like. So right. you know, to us, it says strong job growth. Um, it's in part a function of businesses being a bit more confident as recession risk has faded, as the risk of further Fed hikes has faded. So there's a, an incentive to potentially hire a bit more here. Um, yeah, go ahead.
2: Well, I, I don't mean to, to, uh, to go ahead. But the research note is extraordinary. I mean, the, the Rickadonna, you know, the hmm. the concision of what Husby's doing with Rickadonna mm-hmm. and the team over there is extraordinary into the weekend, Andrew, what's the item of inflation that we need to think about what when you sort out X number of components, what's the one you're watching into March?
6: Uh, so at the moment, you know, I, I know it's been a refrain for some time now, but it is really that uh, services number uh, x x housing. Uh, we've seen a lot of progress on goods. We expect that to continue through the first part of this year, but um, we think that there is a relationship between uh, labor slack uh, and that uh, core services component of inflation. And. <laughs> In the January report, that was quite strong, uh, pointing to, you know, there may be some quirks here. Um, it's the start of the year. Businesses reset prices and the like. So we'll need to see a few more reports right. here to really be uh, thinking about a dramatically different outlook here. But um, it really is services prices um, uh, for us.
2: I can't say enough about this. Andrew Hausby, thank you so much. Don't be a stranger with b and Perry by their senior US economist. Without question for Global Wall Street, this is the conversation of the day. Gene Munster with us across the next half hour. I can't say enough about uh, his work from Piper Jeffrey long ago. It was research that made you stop, and we're thrilled that he could join us uh, today from Deepwater Asset Management. Gene, I quote from pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, CapEx, Microsoft, $15 billion. 21, 23, 28, 35, and they're gonna buy from NVIDIA enough where we've got a modeled CapEx out 14 months, 15 months of $45 billion. Do you have a Mm -hmm. vision of how that money's spent, the efficacy of it, the safety of it for our listeners and viewers, this global CapEx off NVIDIA?
5: Love the topic, Tom, it's not just Microsoft, it's Google, it's Apple. They haven't said as much. Meta has said this 30%. That's kind of the benchmark, 30% increase in their compute. And so when we think about this, uh, these layers of AI, uh, there's two parts to the question. One is, what does the ramp look like? And this is a 30% step up. Uh, If you look at Jensen Wong's comments from NVIDIA this week, he talked about the chip, uh, the GPU market being several hundred billion dollars over the next few years. It's about a hundred billion dollars today. So uh, that kind of plays along this trajectory of 25% growth. I think what uh, your listeners should take away here is that there is a significant investment, a massive investment going on from these hyperscalers, these big tech companies. Uh, This is the first of four waves of investment that will probably last a decade. And as far as what it means for our lives, I think it's going to be the most profound change, much more than what the Internet was. Last time uh, we spoke about this this spectrum that I have in terms of how to think about AI relative to our lives, I put a spectrum of zero to 100, electricity is 100, the uh, PC was a 20, mobile 25 internet 50 and AI is 99 and wow. it would be a hundred if not right. for needing that electricity so <laughs> it's a big this is a big deal and I'm uh, I think that your listeners just take away that the significance of this change is going to be more profound than the internet
2: Gene I, I want to frame this as something maybe we understand unlike experts like you I think of all the other compatriots and tech Danives and such and that is there was the model T which was like okay well that's a fad. And then in 1927, 1930-ish, the Model A showed up and Alfred Sloan was over at GM trying to make magic happen. And it was like, whoa, wait, this automobile is going to be a real deal. Maybe it's actually going to work. Where are we within that continuum? Are we looking at AI as a fad? Are we to the Model A? Or are we to the Ford F-150 pickup truck where it's AI entrenched, AI's entrenched in society?
5: So from the impact to society right now, it's a, a Model T, and it, it, it is, uh, we're just still scratching the surface, and just to put some context on that, is that most of that spend, when we see this just breathtaking change in NVIDIA's business, I want to just take a pause for a moment and put how breathtaking of a change this is. NVIDIA's business for the previous three quarters before the AI liftoff was down an average of 17% per quarter. This business was in the toilet. And it has now, since the three quarters that it's uh, taken a step up, it is up 200% on average per quarter. And so what we're seeing is this uh, dramatic step up. And when we think about most of that spend, the vast majority of it has been related to those hyperscalers building the Model T it's related to, um, uh, the, the but there has been an important data point that Jensen Wong talked about in the NVIDIA call, is that 40% they now believe of this, their current sales of chips are going to power, are currently powering inference. Inference is what comes out of the model. When you go into chat GPT and put in a prompt and you get something back out, that something that you get back out is called an inference. And so what that means is that it's actually, people are actually using this. This is not big tech spending a bunch of money to build something that they hope people will come. This is big tech recognizing that the behavior is already there, even though it's nascent, it is still, it's taking off in concert, in, in uh, lockstep with what their investment is. And so uh, when I think about, we're gonna go from the Model T to the F-150 to the Cybertruck in about three to five years. And I think when you when you put that type of a, a, a scope and scale, most of the commentary I hear is this, this is an NVIDIA led rally. And this is, are we right. getting bubble-ish? We're not even close to bubble. Bubble is when the market trades at 100 times right. earnings. We're at 28 uh, times.
2: Paul, Microsoft 415. Yes. Dollars per share. It's
0: been wow. another, another great way to play. Gene, I have to admit here in cocktail parties, I definitely uh, use your kind of spectrum thing there, talking about electricity and where AI fits in. I give you full credit, though. I want you to know. but Appreciate that. It, Thank it, you, Paul. It works. It really uh, takes people's breath away to just give it some context. So, Gene, I want to talk about uh, competition here. Uh, when are the AMDs of the world or the other chip makers? going to step up and be real competitive here. Maybe even maybe some of the customers, like on Apple, saying, hey, we can build our own chips. Talk to us about how you think competition is going to evolve.
5: So look for competition to start to have a meaningful impact, on, at least on NVIDIA's business, probably in two to three years. And specifically, as we think about AMD, they're actually getting some traction. They're actually putting a significant effort into GPUs. Intel has just started that, but it's still just too nascent. we're talking about low single digit percent market share of GPUs. AMD is kind of around that 10%, Nvidia is around 85%. And so what it is, the the most important point to your question is it's not just about what the absolute market share is today, it's about what the trend in the market share Mm -hmm. is. Is AMD gonna gain share? And my expectations is over the next couple of years, NVIDIA's market share is probably going to be 70% or above. They may lose a little bit. They'll lose probably most of it to AMD, but it's still going to be a huge share in what is a quickly growing market. Uh, beyond that three to five years, that's when things start to get more difficult. And I believe that AMD is going higher. Right. I believe eventually, three to five years, it's going to hit the wall because of what you talked about. Ultimately, these hyperscalers are going to back off. Right. But what, one of the benefits that, AM, that, uh, that NVIDIA has here is that they will lose business to the hyperscalers when they come out with their own chips. But it's unlikely those hyperscalers sell their chips to third parties. And if you think about these four waves of AI, there's still three more waves that need to be powered by, uh, by publicly available uh, uh, GPUs like NVIDIA. Right.
2: Paul, to frame NVIDIA at 400 in the quiet of November last year, to surge now to 820, up nicely from yesterday, it's all oh, this is critical, folks. It's only 2.6 standard deviations. That goes to Mr. Munster's comments that the exuberance really isn't there technically, like you'd think, given the right. hype and the uproar.
0: Exactly. So, but Infinity at its core, uh, Gene, it's a chip company. And what I've learned, I'm not a tech analyst, but what I've learned from reading tech research is that's a really cyclical business. So, once I sell a chip to a customer, it's not like a software as a service where they're going to give me recurring revenue. That's kind of it for a while. So, is there a a tail end to this thing
5: there is that's why you see uh that i think three to five years is that nvidia is going to hit the wall there's going to be a very dark day we're going to (laughs) have this boom and bust i wanted to highlight kind of that scar tissue in terms of what their business has done before because of that dynamic that you talked about and uh, that eventually will come the the question isn't that i i see the question more as what's the duration of of this run and i would come back to those four pillars just to recap them We're currently in right now the, the infrastructure build phase. Then we're going to go to applications. That's like co-pilots, uh, ServiceNow, Salesforce. And then it's going to be heavy industry doing generative AI. And then lastly, countries with sovereign AI. And so there's, right. uh, I, I think that, um, yes, there, uh, once everybody's full, but right. it's, it's, uh, we're still got a long way to go before we get full with these chips.
2: We're with Gene Munster. Of deep water and it is a great thrill i think a harsh kamar over in the slot genius to have at piper of minnesota good morning to all of you listening up at piper jaffrey country and gene monster it's like the muppets thing one of these teams is not playing like the other teams or whatever the muppets song is i got mm-hmm. microsoft up nvidia up the whole thing and apple's giving me no love at all i mean you know Harsh has a neutral on it over at Piper w- with her Apple are they under a pressure to do something given the tech nirvana of the last 3 months
5: yeah yes uh, excruciating pressure Of course, uh, Tim Cook uh, did not utter those two letters in all of 2023. He did proactively talk about AI for the first time in in their December earnings call. I think that was a marked moment and they're going to have something to say about AI, he said this year. Most likely that's going to be in June at their developer conference and most likely they will announce a foundation model. These are really the core engines that all yeah. these AI applications are built on. So um, Apple's, the big challenge with Apple is it they haven't grown for the past six quarters. It basically is a flat yeah. business if you kind of average it all out. And they haven't said anything about AI. And I think that they're in a right. great place to surprise people on AI this year. Right.
2: Let's surprise people, Paul. <laughs> and Paul's been leading on this. He's been screaming about this, his first gray hair. Paul, free cash flow, 70 billion yep. is now 113. Revenue 274 million is 413 million from the pandemic, and the, and the answer here is they're minting profit, as Mr. Munster says, they're not growing.
0: I know, and so I've you know, how about a dividend for uh some folks here, a meaningful dividend? But that's not in Tim Cook's wheelhouse. Hey, you know, Gene, one of the things I'm looking for as this AI. Sector industry mania kind of continues to evolve is kind of the bellwether IPO. And I know at Deepwater, you guys see lots of early stage companies here. And I'm looking for like an AOL. America Online was for the consumer internet. The search, we identify with Google. Social, we identify with Facebook. Do you think there's going to be an AI company come public that just blows everybody away?
5: Uh, yes, uh, we're really excited about that. I think that's probably a year, two years away, but we're going to see a cast of foundational AI companies. These are not companies benefiting from AI. If you think about where AI sits, like within inside Microsoft or what it will be in uh, Apple or Meta, it's a small piece of it, but these companies are entirely, they're companies like Hugging Face. This is an open platform for AI models. Many of you haven't uh, heard of them. And uh, I think that uh, there's other companies like Andro, which uses a lot of AI with uh, defense. And then this is going to be the the one p- uh, potentially, I think this will be the biggest surprise relative to uh, up-and-comers and will be one of these mega cap uh, tech companies is X.ai, Elon's company. And uh-huh. what he did is, uh, this is I put this in the category of he's 80% genius, 20% uh, uh, luckiest man on earth. <laughs> the Twitter purchase uh you know he uh this uh, x.ai owns about 20 percent of that they will use that data which is the world's best data when it comes to real-time intention that is critical data they'll use that to inform and build the x.ai foundation model and uh, that is a massive opportunity. The, the message that Elon's had, he, he refers to this as a truth-seeking AI. There's been some comical things that have gone on in the image generation AI space relative to Google this week, which sets this x.ai up for a massive opportunity. I believe this will hands down be Elon's greatest source of really? wealth, x.ai. Wow. He's currently, based on Bloomberg, he's, he's worth $210 billion today. X. AI, I believe, will be a public company in the next three years, and I think it's going to be one of those mega cap AI companies.
0: That's good stuff. I mean, again, Elon in the seemingly in the nexus of everything of interest out there. All right. So talk when I see a a market grow like this is growing, and I see a mania uh, around a certain situation like AI. I guess in the back of my mind, I also think, June, uh, Gene, boy, it just feels like Washington is going to feel like it needs to get involved here in regulating. Uh, some of this. What do you think? How do you think Washington views
5: AI and, and is that a risk? It's a risk. I mean, Washington has generally a general view that big tech, of course, needs to be regulated. The AI conversation has more layers to it, of course, because of the national security piece to yeah. it is. When you think about uh, national defense, whether it's intelligence gathering, whether it's how some of these systems work, whether it's just how our country's GDP evolves, powered by AI, having a, a sovereign, a strong AI, a strong tech, is something that benefits the government so when i think about government regulation over the past five years relative to big tech it has been things around like the app store or uh, engagement around uh, instagram Uh, they've been about uh, microsoft buying um, uh, uh, activision these things are petty compared to what is at stake when it comes to AI. and i think that ultimately that significance is going to benefit big tech
2: Gene, one final question, completely unfair. Let's go back to Piper Jeffrey. single best buy, buy, hold, sell with Gene uh, Munster. Can you acquire shares of NVIDIA this morning?
5: Uh, yes, I think NVIDIA is going to go higher. I think that it, if I, by, based on my expectations, this is not investment advice. This is just how I see it. I think that this should appreciate at about 15% a year for the next two to three years. I don't think uh, we're going to have this massive growth, but I think this continues just to march higher based on all the things we're talking about. Most, If you believe in AI, yeah. believe it's as big as I believe it is, NVIDIA is going higher.
2: This is the class act. Most people, Paul, would have avoided that question. Yep, Gene Munster nailed it. Gene, honored to have you for a half hour beyond this historic week, this historic Thursday uh, that we've seen Gene Munster with Deepwater. the daily headlines, a look at the front pages. Lisa Mateo avec le journal. That's
7: pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I never took French. Uh, all right, so we're starting with the Wall Street Journal. This is an interesting story because it's saying Meta knew about parents exploiting their own children with new paid subscription tools, and they did nothing about it. Now, this is disturbing on so many levels. First of all, the parents. These are parent-managed accounts. They're using subscription feature to sell exclusive content their daughters yep. wearing bikinis, yep. wearing leotards. no nudity, um, but it was sold to an audience that's overwhelmingly male. Some expressed central interest in the children and their comments and posts, so the parents knew what was going on. Teams inside Meta, they started raising alarms about this. Um, they tried to warn Meta. Meta's response is that they built this automated system to prevent it from happening, but it just didn't work. So and they, this is just crazy on so many different levels. Yeah,
0: starting with the parents. And, yes. You know, that, that's where it's got to go. All right, what else?
7: Um so we've heard about the returning to the moon yep. right for the first time all right this one is um, another piece of history. It was college students. The lander actually took a selfie as it landed. It was uh, made by graduate students. This camera from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Florida, Beach. Yeah. Yep, in Florida. And that is actually uh, the alma mater of Intuitive Machines' CEO. So that's the uh, connection to the school Great right aerospace
0: there. Uh, program. The aerospace the program. The aerospace yeah, program.
7: Yeah, it yeah, took them pilots. like four years to yep. make it. And so it's this little box, ejected from the lander, and it, was, um, and it worked. And they took the picture. Cool. And what's crazy is that, a lot of the graduate students who did this they weren't alive when you know the the, the saying, first landing happened yeah i don't, don't think we were
0: taking were selfies back in 1972 no. <laughs> as i recall with our instamatic or whatever we had the codec it, it
2: was it, it was something and you know i i, I remember i literally remember the day up in rochester mm-hmm. when hasselblad won the contract to be the camera that the astronauts carried okay. around. That was a dark day. <laughs> they were looking for the instamatic to be right. there going. That didn't quite uh, work out. What else do you have?
7: Uh, this is the Financial Times. We were talking about the the luxury market yesterday. Um, so it says the uh, LVMH is turning to Hollywood to promote a lot of their brands. It's a new venture. Yeah. It's called Twenty Two Montaigne. My my French accent is not as well as I yours. Killing it. I, yeah, I killed it. Brooklyn. Yeah, Friend, the Brooklyn French accent. French Jackson. in Brooklyn. It's a
2: YouTube channel.
7: <laughs> but uh, it's a collaboration with them and Super Connector Studios. So this is this company that connects brands to production companies. So they want to start doing advertising, product placement, um, original products, TV, film. And you kind of seen it. Remember Breakfast with Tiffany's? You've seen it there. Well, that's the where you've it But House, House yeah. of Gucci, you've seen yeah,
2: it. You, you walk by Tiffany's and there's the Audrey window. And I think up second or third floor, John's got the... Audrey Dress, guess what? Beyonce's driving the ship. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the Arnaud family is doing what you're and talking about. And this will about. be overseen by their, their Antoine
0: kids. Arnaud, who's the oh. eldest son oh, of the founder, Bernard. <laughs> so it's probably Bernard saying, I gotta give my son something, something to so do. Oh great. no, they have <laughs> a whole bunch of, there's a whole <laughs> I know. bunch of sons I know. and the daughter runs oh.
2: Christian Dior. Can I do a TV shout out this weekend? Yes. The new look, can't say enough about it on Apple TV. It's about all that Lisa Mateo's talking about, folks about Coco Chanel and Christian Dior, and it's shocking how they hated each other. And it was all in the background of the 1940s and the 1950s. So it's just a home
7: run. Cool. i got to check it out. Great. It's great. There they all go. wear bow ties. They <laughs> were. Is that it? Are you done? <laughs> One more. We have to get to the Vision Pro users. Okay, there's a warning. Oh, oh, that's so
0: yesterday.
7: <laughs> from the San Diego police, they are putting out a warning. They're saying, don't use them when you're crossing the street, because apparently people are doing that.
0: Yeah, and they're getting run over.
1: They're getting yeah. It's, yeah. it's it's dangerous. Yeah. yeah,
7: and they posted a video. They're just warning people. They say keep the virtual experiences on the sidewalk, folks.
1: Yep. <laughs> so, Crazy.
7: But you've seen it. You've seen that. You've seen pictures of people uh, driving with a, with a, the vision goggles on. I, I, I don't know how that works. I don't know, yeah, how, I that don't I don't know how that works. Very dangerous.
2: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, bringing you the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Visit the Bloomberg Podcast channel on YouTube to see the show weekday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern from our global headquarters in New York City. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App.